Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of finding out that you can game anytime, anyplace, including the past. No cold fishes here, folks. We're going to be just eager beavers, and we're just going to go through this, folks. Okay. All right. You know, slap daddy. We're going to just go ahead and do our best. Just jazz it up. So uh, we are talk. Uh, uh, we did a previous podcast about playing Bureau Thirteen in the nineteen twenties. Okay, we are following that up with playing Bureau Thirteen in the nineteen forties. So you know, don't think it's about Bureau Thirteen. It is about. Uh, it's about playing any. So uh, this. Uh, so we're talking about supernatural investigations during the 1940s, but of course, any kind of a uh, you know retro uh, uh, diesel punk, any other kind of thing like that, that all works just fine. Okay, so uh, so uh, Travis, uh, uh, Travis, and Jonathan and I have. Uh, sped our little time machine into the past to go and talk about what it would be like to run a bureau or any other kind of supernatural investigation uh, in the 1940s. Now, there was something important that happened in the 1940s. Jonathan, what was that? Uh, oh, let me see. Let me think. Uh, I think it was a little, little uh, dust-up called um, World War II. World World War Two, well that that sounds pretty big. So uh, and uh, where did that take place? Well, I think the name kind of implies it was all over the world. Although uh, I think some places were definitely hit harder than others, like Europe. Right. Um, but the Pacific saw some action as well. The Pacific Ocean, especially um, uh, places especially like Hawaii. Through yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So uh, my leading question is is the point that even though the bulk of the conflict happened over in the European and the Pacific theater, lots of things actually happened at home in the United States that are germane to our discussion. So we'll be getting to that. Uh, but uh, uh, first we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what we, a little bit of what's gone before. Okay, so uh, one of the things that has continued to rise and is about to basically run out of steam uh, from our uh, uh, from our podcast on Bureau Thirteen in the nineteen twenties is spiritualism is pretty much reaching its its high point. Um, it may have already reached its high point and be on its way down. So all those decades of people who were running off and doing seances, especially rich people, uh, and uh, all the things having to do with, with reaching out to people beyond. Uh, this, you know, this is, this is still an important part of the, mind, the zeitgeist, the mindset of the American people in the 1940s because, you know, it's, it was part of the past. And those people... Uh, are still doing that. So, uh, and because of that, in the 1940s, we, uh, when I was looking at the supernatural instances, things that were actually recorded and such, mostly what I saw were ghost stories, stories about witches, and movies involving spirits and things like that. Now, uh, there was a lot of horror movies, especially from you know, Universal Studio with the big, you know, Universal Studio monsters. But most of the other places didn't really seem to be taking the supernatural that seriously. I mean, you know, the spiritualism of the 1920s and 40s is that it'd become a bit of a parlor trick. 
a matter of fact, a number of the movies involve mediums as such, and they uh, they basically see them as being charlatans, or they make fun of them as part of the movies. So it's a different it's a different mindscape, though it's still there. And of course, it's Bureau Thirteen or Call of Cthulhu or any of the other shows uh, or any of the other supernatural games you might be playing. And we know that the supernatural is real. So, Trav, during this period of time, is, is, uh, though it started, again, it started before, is kind of the heyday of what's referred to as diesel punk. Can you explain what diesel punk is? Uh, diesel punk, okay, we all know what steampunk is. It's from basically the 1890s up until, I believe, the beginning of World War I, so 1914. So from 1914 to about World War II is diesel punk. It's a lot more, okay, probably a lot more sturdier machinery. Um, let's see, I think the whole Dust Bowl era was a big thing with diesel punk where you had that grimier, dustier aesthetic, I guess would be the best way to describe it. But yeah, the, the diesel punk era, I believe, is from the World War I era through the Great Depression, at least to the beginning of World War II, if not all the way to... Well, yeah, I think it's up until 45. Into the 1950s, so it, actually. Uh, 1950s, I think... Oh, God. That's, that's the settings. 1920s. Atomic punk... Atomic Punk, I think, is where you start getting into the 50s. Well, that's what's going to take over from it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's 1914 to 45 is the quote-unquote diesel punk era. And I finally managed to get um, Bureau 13 OGL up. Uh, I do have the instances in the 40s that are in the timeline that I helped comprise for when we did Bureau 13 OGL. Um, let's see, 1941. A golem is released from a German submarine, causes havoc in Norfolk until captured. 1942. Japanese water demons, Kappa, attack a merchant ship in San Francisco, and the Bureau is there. The fight begins to stop the sub the fight begins to stop the supernatural sabotage of America's full entry into the Second World War. 43. With French resistance help, the Bureau destroys German Overmans or Ubermensch. Their experiments to create a genetically superior human race. On the West Coast, first use of friendly magic to stop Japanese terror balloons. 1945, Bureau 13 battle Nazi Germany, last attempts to unleash powerful paranormal horrors in American England. And 1948, elves return to the Appalachian Mountains and race havoc until the Bureau intervenes and establishes the balance. So during the 1940s, trust me, the Bureau was very busy. So if you are running a Bureau game in this decade, saying that your hands are full and you have a full dance card is an understatement. There was plenty, stuff aplenty going on for those who stalked the night fantastic. It's work on all sides. Mm -hmm. Now the Bureau, you know, which is chronically understaffed to begin with, had a oh, yeah. quite a bit of a personnel drain during this time period because of the war. I mean, if you were a, you know, red-blooded, you know, real man, you know, who cared about his country, you were signing up and go, uh, to go over and fight, you know, the, 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 the real menace, you know, the that was going to jackboot its way across Europe and then across the ocean to America. So there was, a, you know, it was the people who remained behind were hard-pressed to, to basically fill in for all the, the people that had trouble. And so because of that, uh, you know, and the reason I mentioned Dieselpunk uh, um, is because that was an era where probably the Bureau had the fastest cars. Uh, oh, yes. Than they ever had. Because, you know, be, later on, they put, they put speed limits on all those roads, okay? Back in this time... Nobody had speed limits on roads except in urban areas, okay? Yes, Once you th got those, out, those bastards, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, now, okay, what wasn't out there, though, was uh, there were no interstates. Uh, those, yes, that, that's That project right. was, actually, it yeah. was, there was a, uh, it was signed. There was a, an actual document uh, that was passed uh, about creating the, uh, an interstate uh, highway network. 
and not one word about how it was going to be paid for, except maybe like the states will do it, you know. <laughs> and the states said, what? <laughs> and nothing happened until we got federally funded in, in, uh, in the 50s by Eisenhower. So, yeah. uh, so there was no interstate. You couldn't just get on the road and drive 150 miles an hour and, you know, and, and like some people do, uh, and, and think you had clear sailing. You know, as a matter of I'm fact... I'm feeling, feel, uh, feeling a little called out here being up here in Detroit, just yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I mean uh, Jonathan, do you know why, um, like, one out of every five miles um, on the interstate is actually like a straight piece of road? Part of it was um, to act as emergency runways um, or, Ooh. you know, temporary runways for, you know, if if America had been invaded, there was a convenient runway for planes to operate as a forward uh, defensive line against invasion. Oh. Well, land like or take off because, you know, that was yeah. enough room for them to do so. So if we had to basically fall back out of our cities that were being bombed by Russian invaders or there was a nuclear strike, there was all of these impromptu ru runways that were being maintained on a yearly basis for a uh, an aerial response to be able to come back. So, but that didn't exist. That was coming. Okay. Um Point of order here, and it's a matter of local history for me. Okay, when we, when all of our, you know, the aforementioned red-blooded real men went over to Germany and out to, you know, the Pacific to fight for our freedom, we had here in America what was known as the arsenal of democracy. Now, here in the Detroit area, again, as you all know, I'm here, I'm in suburban Detroit, born and raised here. And matter of fact, I grew up not more than five minutes from this place. Sadly, it's shut down now due to, you know, GM and all the you know, yada, yada, yada. It was called the Willow Run Assembly Plant. Now, I believe it was the B-2 bombers or B-2 or B-52. But basically, there was a massive plant on the borders of Wayne and Washtenaw County where I grew up that they made, that was like a major implement of this arsenal of democracy. And there, and of course, there's um, Ecorse Road, which runs right by. You can take Ecorse Road all the way down. I can get on Ecorse Road. It's the road where my current employment is and take that all the way down. And it becomes a dual-laned highway. So what Jonathan said about access runways it's there. I mean, Ecorse is a two-lane road. You know, it's not a divided highway. As soon as it hits Belleville Road, it becomes a divided highway. And so now that Jonathan brings up this whole thing about, you know, ready-made makeshift runways, that made splitting Ecorse Road. Now, I always wonder, it's like, you know, and I, and I lived in the area all my, all my childhood. And I'm there like, why did this become a divided highway at this point with this? Now that is clear. Thank you, sir. You just cleared up one of the, you know, nagging questions of my childhood. Um, but yeah, Willow Run Assembly was a huge part of the American arsenal of democracy. And matter of fact, the former neighborhood that I lived in and the one that, if those of you on the Podbean app, Furball 77, where she currently lives, that was how ready-made housing for the bomber workers and I believe the, this neighborhood is now 70 years old. And because it, it is on the south side of Westland, but north of the city of Wayne, Michigan, it was known as Norwayne. It has a much less glamorous name now, <coughs> Shacktown. But these, this whole, and they were all, most of them were two-story duplexes. So they were made to accommodate these bomber, uh, bomber plant workers, and then they would just get out onto Merriman Road, take Michigan Avenue. And yes, if you're in the Chicago area, you know Michigan Avenue. It runs all the way there, uh, US 12. They would just zip down Michigan Avenue and like, let's see, it takes 15, 20 minutes to get to Hydromatic. Yeah, 15, 20 minutes, they were at work because they made this entire neighborhood to support all of the Willow Run bomber plant workers during the early days of World War II. So these houses were built like 39, or no, 41, 42. So this neighborhood, which 
has seen better days. It's like a seven. These are seventy-year-old two-story duplexes, but this neighborhood was steeped in this arsenal of democracy that we had going during the nineteen, the early nineteen forties. Of and you know, this is where we get a oh god, I'm blanking on her name. Woman kerchief, muscle bicep. We can do it. Rosie the Riveter. That's her. That's oh, yeah. where we get Rosie the Riveter from. Is because all the men were off to war, so this is the first time. I mean, a little bit in World War One, we had women in the workplace. Oh no, World War Two hit. That's where women became a major raging um, force in the American labor force because they had to work. They had to, you know, go and build these bombers while their husbands and brothers and sons and whatnot were all elsewhere in the world. But yeah, it, it's just, I'm, I'm glad to have been, you know, lived in this area because of that deep history with World War II and the arsenal of democracy and us, you know, having these these plans to help build these bombers. And I think it was the the, the B-2 bomber. Hell, there's even a, a, a restaurant in Ypsilanti, Michigan called The Bomber Restaurant. It's on Michigan Avenue. It's in downtown Ypsilanti, and it's just decorated wall-to-wall -wall with memorabilia of World War II things, including autographed pictures of famous soldiers, and it, it's kitschy, I, best, I think the word is, where it's just so full of that era that just it's it, it it it's loud but yeah the bomber restaurant is a product because that's where the bomber workers after they'd get done on the night shift they would drive maybe five ten minutes and they'd be at that restaurant on the edge of downtown ypsilanti and then drive back you know past work and go back to norway so yeah all of that was very important with at least here in the Detroit area, you know, trying to get this this nation going and helping toward the war effort and getting us our bombers. And we have general dynamics for making tanks. And matter of fact, Blix has been up here, our former uh, co-host, Blix, because he designs military vehicles. He's had to be up here in Detroit for dealing with, okay, the government's doing this. He, you know, business trip here to Detroit. We have general dynamics, which is a tank plant. So that is still a legacy of what we started here in the early 40s. So it, it just a bit of local history here to help fill in blanks here as far as just how important America was involved in World War II. And I just had an idea. Yeah, maybe that would be something that could help with the Bureau. They'd be in this area like, hey, you know, we're, we're devising this new thing and things are going on that they're trying to stop it. Go take care of it. Just a story idea, just a campaign idea, or at least a, an adventure idea. It, it just, yeah, this area here, the, the southeastern Michigan was just very heavily linked into everything that we're talking tonight as far as military and government in the in that decade. <clears throat> Trying to think of what else there is, other little facts I could throw in here just from being... Well, let's, let's give you a chance to think about it. So, John... Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Jonathan, okay... Before World War II happened, something else happened in the United States. Something so cataclysmic that it basically emptied out the entire center of the country. Do you know what that was? I believe that would be the, 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 the Great Depression. No, that was... That was Not a, that particular a bit Oh, okay. Okay, was, we talking disaster? Yes, it was a huge disaster. I mean, it wiped out vast swaths of, 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 of the United oh. States. It was... Are we talking about the Dust Bowl? The Dust Bowl. The Dust yeah, Bowl. Yeah, the Dust Bowl. Okay. Uh, the Dust Bowl, uh, essentially, uh, because of a, uh, a long period of drought... And the fact that the farmers were not using um, farming techniques that were, you know, th they use they were trying to use the same old farming techniques that they had learned instead of using the ones that are designed for people who live in ar arid areas. They ended up basically losing most of their topsoil, which had to go somewhere. It just flew everywhere. It was, I mean, people would come out and, they would, and their cars would be buried under dust from these storms that occurred. Uh, and as a result, uh, 
people literally from, uh, it was the Midwest, especially Oklahoma and Arkansas, started moving to California um, and other places. 250,000 arrived. Now, remember the size of our country, okay? This is, you know, this is modern day. This was back in 1940, almost uh, 80 years ago. Okay, 250,000 arrived by 1940. A third moved into the San Joaquin Valley, which had a 1930 population of 54, 540,000, which means they almost, they, they almost increased by 50%. During the 30s, 2.5 million people left the Plain States. Basically, big exodus. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And, and then you had all the, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and it was so you had these vast areas of the country, pretty much the whole center of the country. That essentially, it wasn't a no man's land, but it was pretty much unpopulated. And what do we know about the supernatural? Unless you're a they vampire. They love ghost towns. They love ghost towns. They love people moving out and giving them space. They get all the all those those supernatural that had been encroached more and more by, you know, urbanization, by industrialization and things like that. All those people moving out, suddenly they're gone. I'm sure that the Native Americans thought, hey, Finally, <laughs> you know, we got our country back, but unfortunately that's going to be short-lived because after the, uh, after the, the uh, end of World War II, the United States undergoes a, a boom like it's never had before. But we're not talking about the 1950s, so we're talking about the 1940s. So at the beginning, before the first world, Second World War, you have all these, basically these large areas that are not... Really, I mean, the full towns that have suddenly just closed up shop because there isn't, a, you know, there's no farmers living there anymore, no crops, you know, no st all the stores that supplied the farmers, they've closed up. You know, there might be a couple of gas stations for long haul people going, few small mom and pop food stores. Supermarkets didn't exist back then, okay? Big factories, you know, uh, all that dust is bad on machinery and things like that. So a lot of people just picked up a lot. Of, when all those people picked up and moved stakes to the West Coast and, to, and close further in toward the East, like up toward uh, Trav's, uh Michigan and Chicago and all other places, those areas became just quiet, you know. Now, it wasn't entirely quiet, you understand, because... Down in the uh, area of like, you know, Arizona and Nevada and things like that, things were actually pretty noisy. <coughs> Do you know why that was, Trav? Well, I know that something happened in 1947. Well, before that. Uh, you got me. No. They were testing I nuclear some... weapons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Alvin McCordo, yes. <laughs> Okay, so you also have vast areas, I mean, basically two whole states that are busy irradiating on a regular basis the area. Now, again, it got worse in the 50s, but they were doing, well, yeah. te they were doing testing. You know, they were you know, testing the atomic bombs and such. You know. uh, yeah, uh, yeah, something that, that deals with, you know, our dear friend Richard. His father was there at Alamogordo, and so, yeah, Rich told me years ago that his dad was in the Air Force and was there when they dropped that bomb at Alamogordo to test it. And so, yeah, I, and ex, it explains a lot about, because I believe his father, yeah, there were things that went on due to being there and just, yeah. But... Yeah, so Alma, yeah, I totally forgot about that. That was in the early 40s, yeah, early to mid 40s. Right, because that's when they used they used uh, oh, what, the bomb. What was the in other the... place? Bikini Eight, Bikini Island, which is now an atoll. Yeah, right. that was the other place. Right. Yeah. yeah, that was later. That was after the war, but not very far after the war because as soon as they dropped those bombs, they had to start figuring out how to make them bigger and better as quickly as possible because the uh, the the Soviets 
thought that was a great idea to make bombs like that. And they well, were... you you know why we we had to make big and and this is one word here why we felt we had to make big things bigger and better. One word, America. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Just well, we were in a race with the Soviets, and they were the big. They ended up being the big boys on the block after after WW two. Because that's when that whole Soviet war machine started up was in '45. I mean, they were our allies in World War II. Right. Well, but... once they were no longer fighting a war, they could take all. They could turn all that that effort into making becoming more and more uh, imperialistic, which yeah, is kind I, of funny I, for a country that that basically lays its claim on socialism. Well, I I, I think it's safe to say that from the mid to late 40s until the 80s when Mikhail Gorbachev did Glasnost and Perestroika, we can easily say that in some ways the Soviet war machine was the biggest on the planet because just, yeah, they had plenty of room to make all this stuff and test all this stuff. And of course with the, and, and I'm using some terms some of you younger listeners might not know about, the Iron Curtain which was, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but this had its beginning in the mid to late 40s. It was the line of countries that you knew once you passed them, you were in Soviet-controlled territory. So they not only had all of Russia, they also had all these countries, including East Germany and Poland and um, what was Yugoslavia, uh, what is now Macedonia, I believe, and just... That, so they had a lot of land to build up this war machine, and they started it in the 40s during World War II because of everything there. You know, it's that one book, Bruce, All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that was due to World War II and just... No, that was World War One. Okay, but, yeah. but still, yeah. all that area in Western Europe... That's where the Soviets fought the Germans and just, they built up that war machine, something horrible. Yeah. It, it oh, they was, did. Yeah. They did. Okay. So uh, anyways, the point is, is that you've got a lot of radioactivity going on. And as we all know, and there's a lot of movies that came out a little bit later uh, uh, in the 1950s about all the, all the things that spawned from that radiation. So uh, Them. Was the one that comes to mind? Yes. Yeah. Well, that one takes place in that area. Yeah. The giant. The, yes. The giant um, ants. Uh, spoil yes. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> and, they are ants. Yes. Uh, but uh, one of the better uh, giants uh, monster movies, uh, though. Frankly, the, the probably the you know the best giant monster movie was uh, King Kong because uh, it was one of the first. Oh yeah. And, uh, and, and, I, and but they got quickly usurped by all the, the Toho studio and, and the, the, those wonderfully rubber suit monsters that they created in, in later on. But anyways, um, so you've got like supernatural horrors, I mean, you know, possibly rising from these radioactive, um, uh, well, basically uh, 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 radioactive insults onto nature. Okay, you have, uh, and of course, the attendant time slips and dimensional rips that are caused by nuclear explosions, which, of course, nobody ever talks about in our world. <laughs> but in Bureau 13, <laughs> you've got that kind of stuff happening all the time, you know. And who knows how many time travelers are coming back trying to change one thing or another, you know, and fighting each other, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and then you've got the supernatural that are coming out of the the Rockies and Nevada and all those areas, fleeing those areas, of course, uh, going out into the um, the emptied uh, uh, Midwest, uh, you know the 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 big flat uh, plateaus, Great Plains, of, plateaus of Oklahoma and, and Arkansas and um, and the plains and things like that. So uh, you know now. I'm not you know, saying that nothing was happening over in, around the bayous of uh, Louisiana and other places, but I'm saying is that this was a major thing that happened to the ecology of the United States. And we know, as, as you know, in the Bureau 13 game, that the supernatural does 
fall inside of ecological niches. Okay, it's it's not you know they don't just happen everywhere. Okay, and so uh, you know if you do if you have any kind of care about that in your campaign and your adventure planning, then these are the sorts of things that you need to keep in mind that you know the, these things were going on. Now, one of the things that did change a lot from the 1920s to the 1940s was the Rural Electrification Project. I mentioned it when we did that podcast. It is in full swing at this point. I mean, yeah, there's, and it's a good time for it too because there's less farms that need, the money's going further because there's less farms that need to be wired up. But so, but they are stretching from, like 300 different small uh, electro, electro co-ops all over the country stretching out to vary in each state to various rural areas with farms and things like that. So, uh, and I think it's kind of interesting uh, that when they, the show, the, the rural electrification people, uh, which by the way, the Rural Electrification Act was in 1936 and it was enacted in uh, on May 20th. Uh, and it provides federal loans, okay, for the installation of electrical distribution systems to serve isolated, which of course were all of them, rural areas of the United States. There, so, um, and hundreds of those power companies still exist today. So when they went out, okay, they would go to houses and barns and various things, and they would install electricity. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jonathan, why don't you tell the uh, tell our listeners what you got? If you were a farmer and these guys pulled up in their trucks and flatbeds or whatever they they were carrying this stuff in, they said, "We're here to wire you up to uh, you know." But of course, the one thing that of course you, you knew was coming because every like what every hundred feet they were putting up another power pole, right? Yeah, yeah. you know. It, and uh, or it might already be there from uh, because they'd had telephones for a long time, uh, and they're but they're adding like you know je, uh, substation you know uh, what do they call them the 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 big uh, the thing that blows this up on the pole like oh the transformers the transformers they had to put those transformers out there you know and they're stringing these high power electric lines you know all along anything close to a, a road. Okay, out to these farms. So what did you get? If you were a farmer and they pulled up and said, we got electricity for you, Mr. and Mrs. Rural America, what did you get from the government? Uh, so, okay, so you got a, you got a, a fuse panel of uh, roughly around, I think it was 60 amps and a 230-volt fuse panel, um, a 60-amp range circuit, a 20-amp kitchen circuit, and then two or three 15 amp lighting circuits. So basically, you not you mainly got enough for your kitchen appliances and some lighting. Right. It's basically a range circuit is for your stovetop, electric stovetop, if you wanted one. Okay. It could also be used for an electric dryer if you were so inclined and not you had and worked tied. All jokes aside, tied to that that line in the back that you hung your clothing on to dry. I see what you did there. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. So, and the funny thing is, is that this is less that's coming into my house right now. Okay, I I have more than sixty amps coming into my house. I'm not sure how many amps I have, but I know I have at least two forty amps going to you know the the kitchen and and uh, well one forty amp is definitely going to the air conditioning unit. I live in Georgia, and uh, another well, one, yeah. another one's going to the kitchen for appliances. But then they also have another one that is for the kitchen, and like you know, I, I've got at least uh, a dozen fifteen amp uh, or twenty amp uh, uh, circuits going to various parts of my house, and so, so you know, uh, so what we know is is that. This did not in any way displace. This did not in any way displace the primary power source on the farm, which was the tractor. 
You still needed that to run your combine, your power, your, your wood shop, your uh, conveyors to bring stuff up to the top of the, the, the barn, uh, your grinders, whatever else. You know, the big stuff still required that mechanical linkage out to your, uh, uh, out to your, your big uh, tractor. So this was great, though, because now, of course, lights were on. You know, you had lights on the outside of your houses. You had lights in your barn. A lot of the supernatural that might have felt free to roam very close to modern America, modern houses and things like that, now we had to stay out in the fields, had to stay further afar. And they, might ha and they couldn't prey upon John Q. Public the way they had been able to before. So, Trav, what do you think the result of that was? Well, the, the supernatural, you know, generally being afraid of light, yeah. The, well, they wouldn't have moved to the cities because there's a lot of light. They would have been in the really remote areas. They would have went back to those ghost towns that were abandoned due to the Dust Bowl. They would have went... What was that? They're loving those. Yeah. They would have, let's see, yeah, they, they just would have retreated deep into the wilderness, just flat up and said, okay, no, these, you know, these tasty humans, they have all that nasty light at, you know, one in the morning or whatever, or, well, no, basically a lot of towns and cities shut down due to, you know, once the sun went down, they were like, okay, we're, you know, we're dark. Yeah, it's the old it's the old quote. They roll up the sidewalks. Right. Well, if they still got street lights running all night, a lot of small towns also didn't have the supernatural coming in because Main Street was still lit up at two in the morning. Right. And so, yeah, most of the supernatural would have went into the deep wilderness, which in the forties there was still a lot of here in this country. Right. It's eroding, but it's still there. Yeah. Yeah. So. What, you know, so what, you know, people talk about, you know, World War II and stuff like that as the beginning of the age of rationalism, okay, where we started believing what science told us and we started essentially stop believing in folklore and stop believing in a lot of things that were of a more supernatural bent. This is one of the reasons why spiritualism was on the downward trend. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the supernatural stopped being cited. You know, there were, uh, they were staying further away. There were less instances of the supernatural preying upon people. Um, people, you know, I don't, I think people, people weren't really better, they, they were better able to protect themselves because they could see them coming from a distance. You see yeah. something large, lopy with fur, you know, running around in a distance, you know, Sasquatch or whatever. You bring your your rifle out, you shoot them at 100 to 150 feet, not as much of a problem, you know. And then the, the uh, uh, you know, then the, the sheriff shows up, takes a look at it, says, well, look what we have here. Looks like a mutated... A uh, gorilla escaped from some some circus that that uh, wandered into one of them new you know what one of them uh, government you know uh, places you know or escaped from one of them government places. They they now had uh, people you know they started coming up with more rational reasons other than the supernatural for these happening because. That's what we were seeing. Science was answering all of our most important questions. Science was coming up with the cure to diseases. Science was was you know giving us electricity, safe electricity. By the way, this was safe electricity. The wires were actually coated with rubber <laughs> and, and stuff. You know, and they actually had laws about how the you know when we talked about the early electrification it was literally taking raw copper wires and stringing them all over the house and woe to you if you touch something okay it was you know it was too bad for you you know uh but now of no, course um they, 
No, I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm reading here the the 60-amp, 230-volt fuse panel. Uh, going back to my comments about the community of Norway, 10 minutes south of me, those 70-year-old houses, those two-story duplex, and there are some branch-style houses in there. They mixed it up a little. Uh, my former residence was one of those two-story duplexes. They still use fuses to this day. I remember being in my old place having to change fuses when stuff blew out. Yeah, That's what so, they had. They didn't have circuit breakers. Circuit break? No, I've got a circuit breaker. It's in, in the back wall of my walk-in closet in my room. Now. Ten minutes south of me in Shacktown, formerly Nor... Well, it's still known as Norway. Shacktown is a colloquialism. It's what we call it. But I remember being at my old place, 99 to 03, and I'm having to, you know, these little round things that you screwed into this panel, and depending on the voltage, some had orange labels, some had blue labels, a few had green labels. And so, yeah, I can imagine these farmers, when the power went out, having to go into town, you know, in their little Model T, Model A, or their farm truck or whatever, going, okay, my lights don't come on. What do I do? Well, sir, you need some of these fuses that you need to unscrew and screw new ones in, and your lights will come back on. But before, I can imagine no, a lot no, of farmers. No, no, no. Before that happens, they get on the phone and they say, hey, my lights went out. He says, what's wrong? He says, well, did one of your fuses blow? He says, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what. Take all your fuses out and put a, put a penny behind each one and close it down. See if your lights oh. go back on. <laughs> Meanwhile, they end up across the room. They see the lights flash for a second before they go flying. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, they would come on, but the problem is is that there was usually some kind of a uh, short somewhere. That's why the fuse blew. It could yeah, be that but, you just uh, put too much power. You tried to drain too much off of it, in which case well, you, yeah, just, that, yeah. you unplug stuff and you do the little thing, and it's fine until the next day when you can you can at least get your lights going. Okay, but Oh, uh, no, no. Um, my old place, the wiring was, uh, this was 10 years ago, so it was 60-year-old wiring. No, it's still 70. Yeah, because it's 80 years old now. The stuff was built in the 40s. It's 2020. 70-year-old uh, wiring, my old place burnt all on the inside. It took them eight months to refurbish it because they had too much stuff plugged in. It was 70-year-old wiring with fuses, too much stuff plugged in. So, yeah, I can imagine on in these new farms... They'd be, you know, like, oh, cool, we get all these newfangled things. And I'm sure that back in the day, more than a few farmhouses throughout the country burned down because these farmers didn't know what to do. They just, oh, cool, we have electricity and plug, 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 plug. And it's like the comical scene you see where, you know, when somebody puts lights up on their tree and you got one adapter and 19 damn plugs all in it. I'm sure there were a few farmers that were doing that and trying to rig things up. And I did that as a child. Ah! <laughs> sure I did. You know I did. But, but I can see that on these farms, these people not doing all these things. And it wasn't the 40s. Because, well, yeah, in, in 1940s, you know, they had to deal with, you know, oil lamps and yeah. whatnot. And all of a sudden they're given this newfangled electricity. I can see a lot of mishaps and shenanigans happening due to, and more than a few farmers lost, you know, oh, this is fourth generation farmhouse and it's now burnt to the ground because they wanted that newfangled. Right, but less yeah. less farmhouses burned to the ground than they did when they were using kerosene lanterns. So oh, yeah. it was still a win it was still a win-win situation. But you now had lights, as they say, lights that could now shine out for hundreds of feet. You know, yeah. where, uh, that you could, you know, lights come shining out of windows, not little couple candle power uh, kerosene lanterns, okay, but big, bright lights that, you know, you know depending upon how many lights you wanted, uh, you know, because you had to pay for that, that electricity. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you still had, uh, uh, you know, it scared off the supernatural, and so I'm saying is that I believe that uh, that this was the beginning of you know the bureau's uh, really big push for hey the supernatural doesn't exist. 
because people were beginning to feel that way anyways. And with these factors coming in where, you know, the horrors of war were so much more present and so much more, uh, you know, filled the minds of people that the horrors of the supernatural and such kind of took a back burner. And a lot of those stories, you know, because when you grow up, everybody grows up in a different world. My son doesn't yeah. know what, what life without a computer is, okay? Right. I, I, you know, I don't know what life without television is, okay? So, right. uh, it, you know, it, uh, and the people who grew up during the 1940s didn't know what it was like not to have electricity, not to have light, not, you know, so when they would tell stories about, you know, people living in, you know, in houses with, you know, no modern plumbing, where no power to run um, uh, well, well pumps to bring water right into the kitchen, no uh, uh, refrigerators, none of that stuff, you know, they're like, what did you live like in, in, the, in the 1800s, in the 1700s? Was this like, you know, pioneer days <laughs> like no it was just like 30 years ago or 20 years ago kid and they're like it sounds like a whole different world so this was a sea change for a lot of people because the world was just changing so rapidly and it was the the, the world before was unrecognizable it, it's it yeah. all sounded like a fairy tale even <clears throat> though so much of it was real and i'm not even talking about the supernatural and you throw the supernatural stories in there, and they're like, oh, it's more of your stories. You know, tell us about when you were a bootlegger, Grandpa. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like that was real, kid. You know, he says, yeah, yeah, and, 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 you, and, you, and you killed a werewolf. Yeah, I did. Yeah, sure. You know. <laughs> Why am I reminded of the current meme of the young lady helping the old lady in the walker, and it's things like, Gwen Stefani was in a ska band. Yeah, Grandma. Let's get you back to bed. That I'm, I'm seeing that meme with what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. So I saw yeah. this, no doubt. So this this was the beginning <laughs> of, of, of the period where people literally were fleeing the past. <laughs> okay. And so could we say? So Bruce, could we say, as far as you know, Bureau Thirteen history, that the 1940s was the very early, early beginnings of their disinformation department? That's exactly what I'm saying. So, okay, all right. Just and and no sure. and not only did yeah. they have that, they had a lot that you know they, they uh, the bureau learned a lot from the uh from shortwave radio. Okay? This ah, was yes. the era of shortwave radio. There were um, I mean later they were in a lot of ways like the the CB radio of of like the uh the 80s of the 70s, yeah. 70s and 80s, okay? Yeah. The shortwave radio, they had people who would actually have these big shortwave, I mean, you know, they were you know, the size of a small suitcase, you know, and a whole setup, and they would basically have their own broadcast. I mean, you'd pay up, you'd pay a little bit of money to, uh, you know, whatever, and you could, and your broadcast could go across, you know, the world. They could literally be heard throughout, you know, and, uh, and of course, this was used a lot by foreign powers to create disinformation campaigns, which were done to try to demoralize, you know, their opponents and things like that, but also to send out false information. Most information was probably disinformation that was on shortwave radio, but a lot of people listened to it and they, and they really couldn't tell what was true and what wasn't true. Okay, so... When people would get on the radio and tell stories about the supernatural, some people would be like, oh, it's real. But then there would be other people like, oh, it was just stories. Somebody was making up a story, you know, and stuff like that. And because of this, this information coming from various sources, a lot of the people who might have been the, the people who are trying to pass on information and be the, the people standing on the walls, the guardians, the, 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 you know, the, the watch people, you know, they were ignored. And again, belief in the supernatural and how to fight it, the lore behind it, fell into disuse except for people who were paying attention, people like the Bureau. 
people who are amassing files, documents, warehouses full of information that, you know, from people who just, you know, from the agents themselves as they went around trying to make sure, trying to find out as much information as they possible, old remedies, banes, what still worked, okay? You know, things like that, because, you know, and uh, because that information was dying. You know, the people that believed in it were shutting up because they were being made fun of by the enlightened, modern people of the 1940s and early 50s. <laughs> okay. Hey, Daddy-O, you know, take take your, you know, take your bed knobs and broomsticks somewhere else, you know. And, and, and the movies, they didn't make it any easier, right? Almost all the movies that took place... Uh, uh, about ghosts and things like that in the 1940s use, a, were either A, they were somebody posing as a ghost but was really trying to do a scam or kill somebody and blame somebody else, you know, or get, just try to get the away Scooby with it. Scooby-Doo shuffle. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay. Or <laughs> they were stories about somebody who was murdered and was trying to get justice, or they were trying to keep somebody from marrying their uh, their widow or widower. So they had this whole like you know uh, uh, crime of passion from beyond the grave. Uh, and and there were a whole bunch of stories like that. There was even one that was uh, from India, which was about uh, a man. Uh, who thought that a woman was the reincarnation of his lost love, you know, and which they may have stolen entirely from uh, uh, Dracula, by the way. I don't know. I'm just saying, but, but and, and so as a result, there was all this question about, you know, who was doing what, and, and uh, people were getting killed as a result of this. And at the end, uh, it ends happily for the the two main characters. They they finally uh, uh, find out that they, there actually is a ghost that was inhabiting the girl that seemed like she was the reincarnation, and it left. And so the two of them got together and went happily off. This this was the kind of supernatural stories. They were like you know you. Could, you really couldn't take the supernatural hauntings and things like that seriously with movies like this. Uh, one of the movies was uh, the uh, uh, was Topper Returns about a guy who, oh, could, yeah. I who could see Topper. ghosts. Yeah. yeah, a guy who could see ghosts. There were like three movies. A guy could see ghosts, but nobody else could see them. That was also a common thing. There were the protagonist could see the ghost and nobody else could. So of course he was immediately, you know, nothing he said was believed. Okay, so and that was very common. People who believed in the supernatural were ridiculed, uh, were thought to be um, uh, not very competent in their brain, uh, or very old-fashioned, and uh, sometimes and or out or out and out liars. So, uh, but there were plenty of people who uh, plied on that stock and trade of these stories and things like that. Uh, and so, uh, Trav, do you know anything about the carnivals and the circuses that arose during this period of time? Oh, yeah. I do believe I mentioned in our Bureau of 13 in the 1920s the series Carnival, which was might have been in that era. And, yeah, they traveled all throughout the, mid, or the Midwest and the Great Plains. And a lot of times they'd be, oh, we went through Arizona and, you know, New Mexico and we've made it to California and we're in this valley and we know there's, you know, a town here and we're going to stop here for a couple days and give some entertainment. Oh yeah. Yeah. The carnivals, they, they, uh, over 300 traveling carnivals and circuses arose mostly due to the rise in fairgrounds for them to set up shop on. Um, I'm not sure when the Michigan state fairgrounds on eight mile in Detroit erupted. I mean, now I think they've, They've, um, I think they've shut down and somebody else bought the property. But they may, that may have started up in the 40s. I'm sure that I will get word on that sometime later on in this podcast from Fur about when the fairgrounds on 8 Mile started up here in Detroit. Yes, 8 Mile, the same one as Eminem. Yes, the same one. Just, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I, the thing that comes to mind with um, carnivals and circuses is the HBO series, the two season series Carnival. And I re- do remember mentioning it the last episode. Um, whether, oh, what was it? Um, not P.T. Barnum. That was the late 1800s. I'm blanking on the on the circus. Well, there were lots of them. I mean, there were you know, Ringling there were... Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. Yeah, that might have that probably all together got coalesced maybe during the 30s, possibly 40s. I don't know the history of that, but there were plenty of smaller circuses that also traveled about. That you know, because not, there was both circuses and carnivals. Uh, the difference between the carnivals and circuses is that circuses had animals. While most carnivals did not have have uh, non-human animals, <laughs> and they had lots more games. Okay, uh, carnivals had sideshows with people with various deformities and and sometimes amazing abilities. Okay, I di- I just checked it out. Um, that actually Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey started 1871 and shut down 2017. Okay, but I'm sure they probably came into their heyday during the 40s because of the fact that all these other little shows were traveling and everyone knew P.T. Barnum. So that was like, oh, what what's the term? That particular service was like the go-to, probably um, the gold standard. And you had these carnival masters who are going, yeah, someday we're going to be like P.T. Barnum and the Ringling Brothers. And yeah. It's like baseball. You've got your Bush Leagues, okay? Yep. You've got your, you know, you know your, your, your like regional leagues. And you've got what's called, you know, the show. Where, uh-huh. yeah. um, I, I was right, Bruce. I did get information about the Michigan State Fairgrounds. Yeah, that was that opened in 1849. So, yeah. That stopped to uh that stopped in two thousand nine. So just yeah, right. Thank you for uh, so yeah. What I'm saying is that you know there were a lot of these places that were building fairgrounds and which were made you know made ready places for people to go and set up because before then you know they were setting up in in some farmer's field you know so of course you know you. Uh, or some uh, more abandoned place, you know. It it was hard to find places for a large carnivore circus to set up. But with fairgrounds, they had the the water hookups, the sewage hookups. They had the electrical hookups. They could put out vast arrays of light and shine and send up, you know, sky writing and stuff like that, you know. So. And, of course, they also had people to fly planes and drop leaflets down onto the ground, you know, to letting people know far and ride. They had AM radio uh, announcing what was going on. They had uh, shortwave radio and whatever else. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it, you know, it was a heyday for a large itinerant show to be able to do that. And they weren't the only ones because, because this was also a period of of revival for churches and things like that traveling uh uh you know uh revival shows was all in miracle shows were also going Uh, on at the same time especially out in these areas that were so hard pressed by what some people might call the wrath of god you know though uh, I think that would be misplaced. Uh, but I'm saying, though, is that people who were grubbing their life away and were having hard times, these kinds of, you know, once a week shows, or not once a week, once a month maybe, once a quarter, you know, they basically, you know, literally made life worth living. You know, uh, you got your eyes up out of the dirt for once, you know? Yeah. And you got to see things from all, you know, from across the world in some of them, especially after World War II ended and, you know, uh, trade and travel be, was lo- a lot less fettered than it had been before. You got to see, you know, Siamese twins from uh, Taiwan and you got to see sword swallowers from uh, the uh, the Arab countries and uh, whatever. I mean, you know, the, all, all kinds of aerialists from from uh, uh, from France and uh, and Spain and things like that. So it's yeah, like the yeah the flying Wallenses and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So all these you know. So this was a great time. You know, America after especially after World War II ended, suddenly had a huge influx of people coming from other countries. This is Bruce Sheffer saying. 
There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.